Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is season 5, episode 5, On Top of the World. The king of Kashmir's brother was bad news. He was self-confident and he was rebellious. He even went so far as to mint his own coins with his own name on them, which is pretty likely to get you into trouble, and it got him in trouble. Soon enough, the king threw his brother into prison. The brother's wife fled. She ran to the home of a potter, and there she had a baby. Indian potters always seem to end up holding the baby at the end of the day. And they did so here, because the wife stayed with the potter, and the potter raised the baby as his own son. Time went by. The child grew bigger, and the king's rage with his brother grew smaller. Eventually the king let his brother out, but by this time his brother was old, and he died shortly afterwards. And that was a problem because the king didn't have any son of his own. There was no heir to inherit the kingdom. So he searched around for someone, anyone suitable to take over the kingdom. Fortunately enough, down in Malwa ruled the legendary king Vikramaditya. And so the king of Kashmir asked King Vikramaditya to send a governor. Meanwhile, a young poor man was trying to make his way as a poet. His name was Matrigupta. According to some people, he was also called Kalidasa. Anyway, he heard that poets could make their name and their fortune in the court of the legendary Vikramaditya. They could win patronage. So the poet made his way there, and at some point, somehow, he managed to get to speak in front of Vikramaditya himself. The king seemed... Yeah, pretty pleased with the poem, but he was somewhat distracted with the business of the day, and the poet didn't win any patronage for himself. So he settled into the edge of court life, staying just outside the palace, scratching a living as so many artists do. One cold night, the poet was outside the palace. Everyone else was asleep, and this Great gush of cold wind blasted through the place. It extinguished all the flames of all of the lamps and it woke up the king. But apparently only the king woke up because when the king shouted out, Light the lamps! Nobody responded. The poet outside the gate heard the king shout and heard no one wake up and make a move. Ah, I'm already up, he thought. So he made his way into the palace and lit the lamps. A king and a poet up in a late cold night in an empty palace. They fell into conversation. The king heard the poet's poems as if for the first time. In the quiet cold air, it passed from lip straight to ear, undisturbed. And the king loved it. The king saw that this poet was a man of tremendous learning and brilliance, but also one of practicality. And the king started to think, what use can I put such a man to? 
As luck would have it, the king had only just received a letter asking to send someone up to be governor of Kashmir because the king of Kashmir hadn't got an heir. Maybe this is the very chap. So Vikramaditya went and wrote a response to the letter, saying, The man who gives you this letter will be a great governor. Take him on. He sealed the letter. He handed it to this young poet without telling him what it was. And he said, take this letter, go up to Kashmir and present it there at the court. So the poet left on the long road north, presumably a little bit miffed. I mean, the king had seemed to like his poems, but now he was being sent away, almost away, as far away as possible and being treated like a mere messenger boy. But the poet wasn't going to refuse a legendary king. So he went on his way up to Kashmir Valley, up to the palace, to the court, and he presented his letter to the courtiers there. They opened it and read it whilst the poet waited. And suddenly there were trumpets and there was fanfare. The new governor had arrived and he was welcomed in. And so Kashmir passed into the hands of the poet. Meanwhile, the nephew of the old king the son of the man that the king had put in prison, grew strong in the potter's home. His uncle came looking, searching for his mother, and the uncle came to this village and he saw this young man whose features looked so familiar. He hadn't seen him before, but it was almost as if he had. There was something also about the way he carried himself. The uncle felt a paternal love for the lad start to grow in him. And he followed the lad home. And there the uncle found his long-lost sister. And as he talked with his sister about all of the misfortunes she had suffered, the lad heard. He learned of how there was a kingdom that should have been passed down to him, but had been lost, given away. And the young lad resolved to get it back. He devoted himself from that moment to asceticism, to discipline. And when the legendary king Vikramaditya died, and the poet governor had put in place retired, he went off to Banaras to become an ascetic, the lad was ready to step in and take back his throne, to wing back the kingdom of Kashmir for his family. Great story, sadly not true. For one thing, that king's troublesome brother, Toromana is his name. He really was a king. He was a a Hun. But the man who was the king's father in real life appears 700 years earlier in the story. The dates are completely out of whack. For another thing, we aren't even sure about this legendary king, Vikramaditya. I mean, we're not sure who he was, when he was, whether he existed at all. It might be that stories about a number of different kings just kind of get mashed into this one character. And there are plenty of other problems with the story's historical accuracy. Though the poet might really have been ruler of Kashmir, at least for a short while. The story is from the great chronicle of Kashmir, the Raja Tarangani, the Stream of Kings. It's a 12th century text. It's a fascinating read. Strongly recommend it. The early parts of this history of Kashmir are a bit dodgy, we think. But by the period of this episode, by the 7th century or so, the text starts to be pretty reliable. The author, Kalhana, was the son of a minister. 
and he seems to have done a lot of work to make sure the history was right. He looked at 11 different previous texts covering the history, all but one of them are now completely lost to us. And he checked his information also against inscriptions in temples and Buddhist viharas and whatever coins he could find. Good historical work. In this episode, we pick up that story from the Stream of Kings at the point where it starts checking out with other sources. This episode's going to be a little bit old-school political history style with some added stories and twists. We're going to be skipping over the life and culture in Kashmir most of the time. That will come when we finish the story in the next episode. So today, we're going to hear about the king who pushed Kashmir beyond the mountains, an illegitimate marriage, and the three sons who came from that marriage, the good son, the wicked son, and the conqueror. Ready? Let's go. Kashmir, land of tall houses, Land of grapes, the home of saffron, the land of cold water, and most of all, the land of learning. This was a place where things that were hard to obtain in heaven could be found in plenty. That was the reputation that Kashmir had in the early medieval period, and a lot of it checks out. I don't know if tall houses and grapes are still much of a thing up there now, but saffron has been growing there since ancient times. In fact, there's such a close association between saffron and Kashmir that the Sanskrit word for saffron is Kashmir Sambhava, origin of Kashmir, which is actually pretty impressive, right? It's like changing the word car for made in India. Nowadays, saffron in Hindi is called Kesari, which is Sanskrit for hairy. I'm sure half of you know this already. But if you haven't managed to take a look yet, Kashmir is at the northern end of India. The Kashmir Valley is this sort of egg-shaped, not even a valley, it's a plateau 1,800 feet up in the Himalayas. It's formed in much the same way as Nepal was, though it's further north, it's higher, it's colder. And like Nepal, until relatively recently in geological history, Kashmir had just been one big lake. And just like Nepal, that lake had formed the legend of its origin. The lake in the Kashmir Valley was called the Lake of Sati. And in that lake lived a demon. The demon was utterly unbeatable, invincible, so long as it was in its element, under the water. But it was causing a lot of distress, so a sage prayed, and the, god, the gods gathered round, sitting on the peaks of mountains around the Kashmir Valley. Vishnu called on his brother to drain the lake, and he did so, cutting through the mountains with his plough, draining the water out. And then, with the demon exposed out of water, Vishnu attacked him with his war disc, cutting it down. In ancient times, the Kashmir Valley was pretty thickly inhabited. There were said to be 66,063 villages, which is really quite a lot for the area. And near the centre, there was a city where it was ruled from. It was called the Residence. It was also called Srinagar, 
and in fact, that's its name today, where it still sits in the same place. During the time of Harsha, that's last season, a new dynasty took their place in the residence in Srinagar. First king was called King Dalabhavadana. He came in around 625 AD. And he took his Kashmiri forces out of the mountain passes to the south and to the west, into modern-day Pakistan, all the way to the Salt Range and all the way down to the plains of the Punjab. It didn't make too much noise in the histories of others, but he managed to conquer really quite a significant area outside of the Kashmir Valley. And he ruled directly everything from his mountain stronghold down to the plains. And beyond the the area of direct rule in classical Indian style, he had a bunch of tributary states, including Takshila, that ancient seat of learning. So the king had taken Kashmir from a small mountain kingdom isolated in a valley to a really significant power in the area. It's even said that the neighbouring king down on the plains planted two saplings, a white poplar and a juniper, and that he waited after he had planted them for a month or more until they grew and they became entangled with one another. And he pronounced that gate the border between his land and that of Kashmir, and no one was to pass that gate which at least shows that the boundary was down on the plains. But Dalava's not really a man we can meet. He's someone we only really know from his acts. We don't get to see him personally. The story, the personal story of his dynasty, really picks up with his son. Pratapaditya inherited the kingdom of Kashmir with its secure heartland hidden by well-guarded mountain passes and a really rich hinterland. And the new king seemed pretty content with that. For there's almost no historical events in his rule. He ruled 50 years and there's nothing cataclysmic enough to make its way down to us. I sometimes wonder if I would rather leave nothing to history like that. I mean, all those people who want to be remembered by future generations, maybe they're just wishing trouble on themselves. Maybe Pratapaditya had it sorted. Do your job well, cause minimum fuss, and you'll prosper. No one will remember you too much, but that will be fine. Well, perhaps... Because even if Pratapaditya had a simple life at work, he found ways to make his personal life complicated. It started at work, he founded a new town, not too far from the residence, and he named it, modestly enough, after himself. He called it Pratapapura, Pratapatown. And it was, apparently, a beautiful town. It attracted rich merchants into the Kashmir Valley. They filled the town and brought lots of prosperity. And one of the richest of them built a house for Brahmins in the new town. Now the king was pleased with this, so he brought this rich merchant to the residence to congratulate him on his charitable act. And they had a rollicking good evening together of the sort that rich merchants and secure kings can only have. They got to bed late. In the morning, 
The king was ambling about, and he saw the rich merchant, but the merchant didn't look so hot. Are you okay? asked the king. Yeah, it's, it's just these rooms, said the merchant. It's the lamps in them. They, they give out smoke. I'm not, I'm not used to it. What's that? said the king. How do you light your own home? Do you not have lamps? Oh, oh, said the merchant. You'll have to come and see. I don't have lamps at all. I've got something else. So by and by, the king went to the new town, went to the rich merchant's house. And when he entered, he saw that the merchant was telling the truth. There were no lamps. Instead, there was a stone. And light was shining from the stone and filling the whole house. A sort of early medieval rocky light bulb, I suppose. A tremendous luxury. The king stayed with the merchant for a few days to enjoy it and to enjoy the other pleasures and luxuries of the house. The rich merchant had work and he went off on business and the king said, don't, don't worry about me, I'll just hang around and enjoy the easy life here. The rich merchant's wife stayed at home and caught the king's eye and the king caught her eye too. She snuck behind a pillar and poked her out and eyed him up. Pretty soon, alone in the house together, they fell for each other. Whatever that means. You know, I used to think that falling in love was a silly modern notion. I'm entirely wrong about that. It was a silly ancient and medieval notion too. Anyway, the story goes that the king and the merchant's wife fell in love. But the king was a stand-up fellow. He wasn't just going to run away with another man's wife, even if that meant staying without the love of his life, even if that meant feeling bad. Now you mention it, as long as the merchant's wife wasn't around, the king really did feel quite bad. Ill almost. Soon, the king was on his sickbed, looking like he was heading to death, a death of heartbreak. The rich merchant came to see his friend, the king, and he found out the cause of the trouble. And the merchant said to the king, well, what's the use of resisting temptation? I mean, sure, it gets you a good reputation, but when you're dead, you can't have a good reputation. Listen. I'll send my wife to you as a dancing girl, then you can marry her and then you'll recover. And so that's what happened. The merchant sent his wife to the king as a dancing girl and they married and the king recovered. Now, that story sounds tremendously like a tall tale to hide a low deed. Propaganda for a king not living up to the standards of his time. Or our time either. At this time last year, adultery was still a crime. Even the text which this story is from, that stream of kings text, doesn't treat this marriage as a good thing. Instead, it's something which the king and the queen both have to work for the rest of their lives to wash the stink off of. The queen duly made donations to religious institutions, to temples, to Shiva and Vishnu, to Buddhist viharas, and the king did the same. They lived together, and they had three sons. And then, about four years after that, the king died. Around 7-11. The date, not the shop. The king was to be remembered by nothing more than his cover-up story. Maybe old Pratapaditya 
didn't have his life so sorted after all. So the king and the queen had three sons and the oldest one inherited the throne when the old king died in accordance with the usual custom. The oldest son was a brilliant chap. He's called, he was called Chandrapida and he was kind, putting others before himself, almost but not quite to a fault. And Chandrapida did what all of the great kings do. He set about on a building project, building temples. And not just him, his guru too, and his ministers, and his queen, all of them inspired by his greatness. Now, one of the temples that the king ordered built was supposed to be constructed on a patch of land. But at the corner of that patch of land was the shop or the hut of a leather tanner or a shoemaker. The ministers in charge of the building asked him to leave, but he wouldn't. Then they tried to bully him to leaving the hut, but he refused. It became an issue, and the issue of the troublesome tanner passed its way up the chain of command. Minister, more senior minister, more senior minister, until at last it reached the king. And when the king heard about the debacle, he was furious. But not furious with the tanner. The king was furious with his own officials. It's his hut, said the king. How can you just expect him to give it up? We can't force him. Go and build the temple elsewhere. But the tanner came to see the king at the residence. He couldn't get an official audience, but the two somehow run into one another in the corridors. And the king asked the tanner, why are you keeping hold of this hut so hard? I mean... I'll pay you if you just give it to me. And with that money, you could get a bigger hut. Or if you think your hut's especially beautiful, you could make an even more beautiful one. It's not that, said the tanner. It's that it's sentimental. All of the times in my life, whether they were good or evil, that hut has seen all of them. It's like a mother to me. I don't want to lose it. If you throw me out of it, I'll feel like... God cast down from heaven. But, the tanner said, if you come to my door, if you're willing to humble yourself that much and ask for it, I'll give you the hut. So later, the king left the palace, went out to the construction site, found the hut and knocked on the door. He asked the tanner for his hut, for a good sum, you understand, and the tanner gave it over willingly. There's some good advice in there somewhere. So Chandrapida cared for his subjects, but don't think that that made him a bad king. In fact, Chandrapida was really rather good, because during his time, the kingdom faced something of a crisis. Arab forces had come during this period to the edge of the kingdom, not to the edge of Kashmir Valley, but instead to the edge of the kingdom down on the plains. And Chandrapida had a plan about what to do. He sent an emissary off to China. You see, there the Chinese empire, the Tang empire, had been expanding to the west. They'd taken control of lands in the Tarim Basin, taking some of those Central Asian cities we spent time in last season. 
and the Tang Empire could see that they were about to come into conflict with an Arab empire spreading east. Already, the Chinese were starting to poke back at the Arabs. So when a kingdom in modern-day Uzbekistan had Arab invaders at its door, they had sent an emissary to China asking for help, and in return, a whole Chinese army had turned up. And together, the Chinese and the Uzbeks had beaten back the invaders. So, Chandrapida tried the same. He sent an emissary to China, this is 713 AD, and he waited. But no Chinese army ever came in response. Instead, there came a letter, and it said that Chandrapida had been added to the list of kings held by the Chinese emperor. Which is nice, I suppose, but not really much help when there's an invader on your doorstep. I mean, Chandrapida wasn't going to get anywhere by saying to the invaders, carry on going a bit further, you'll find China, you'll find a list, there'll be my name on it, then we'll talk. But still, Chandrapida managed to beat them back, keeping the broader kingdom of Kashmir intact. And a few years afterwards, Chandrapida sent another embassy to China. We don't know the message of this one, but I'd like to think it was, thanks for the help, friends, and good luck with that list of kings when the invaders come to your doorstep. Chandra kept his generous nature all the way to the grave. At some point during his dealings and his rulings, he came across a Brahmin. Now, the Brahmin had tried to murder someone, not physically, but with spells, and he'd been caught in the act. And Chandra had to punish him, of course, because he was the king. He's not going to let a murderer off scot-free. So the murderer was punished, and he was sore after receiving his just desserts. And by and by, he ran into Chandra's younger brother, the middle of the three brothers. His name was Tarapida. By the way, Chandrapida means crowned by the moon, and Tarapida means crowned by the stars. And a pida is a, is a crown, not really a crown, a sort of um, a wreath of, of flowers around your head. Anyway, they're beautiful names. Crowned by the moon, crowned by the stars. But old crowned by the stars was not a beautiful person. Because he, Tarapida, when he ran into this bitter murderer, he heard about what had happened. And he saw the murderer's bitterness, and he saw also an opportunity. Ah, so you can kill someone using magic. And now you're down on your luck. I might just have a job for you. Soon after that, King Chandrapida was on his deathbed. Someone somewhere put two and two together and worked out what had happened. But there was no undoing it. The murderer was dragged into the king's chamber to come face to face with what his spells had done. But the dying king drew him close and spoke to him. You're just the tool of my brother. You're forgiven. The murderer's life was spared. And with that... The excellent Chandrapida left the earth, having ruled only eight and a half years. 
his brother Tarapida took over. And according to the account, he was every bit as merciless with the lives of his subjects as he had been with the life of his brother. Many people in the valley fled, running up to the hills to hide in the forests. For four years and twenty-four weeks, Tarapida's cruelty reigned, until he too succumbed. Someone he'd been after had found a Brahmin to cast a spell, and Tarapida's life ended in the same way he had ended his brother's. What goes around comes around, even in ancient magic, it seems. Fortunately, there was someone to inherit the throne. There was one more brother left, the youngest of the three sons. His name was Muktapida, which means crowned by pearls, and he took the throne in 724 AD. But nowadays, he's known by his other name. It's almost a household name, especially in Kashmir, and the name is Lalitaditya. Lalitaditya wasn't a saint like his older brother. He wasn't contented with his lot, always putting the interests of others first. But Lalitaditya also wasn't cruel like his middle brother, unrestrained, ready to use any tool, any weapon to get his way. Lalitaditya had parts of both. His ambition had no end. That's not my interpretation of the man. That's pretty much his own words. Rivers run from the mountains and end in the sea, he said. But a conqueror with his heart set on victory, he has no end. So Lalitaditya had a little bit of the Alexander the Great to him. He seemed to not even be satisfied with the traditional Indian idea of becoming a Chakravartin, a universal conqueror. He wanted to go on and on beyond that. When soldiers and generals were weary and wanting nothing more than that the blood would stop flowing, Lalitaditya had barely begun. What is there to do in my own realm, he'd say. I'd best go out and do some more conquering. He simply didn't know any other way to be. But on the other hand, Lalitaditya wasn't a cruel man. If any of his enemies gave up, if they surrendered, even at the very moment when they'd lost everything, he accepted their surrender. And that was in accordance with the, the newer, perhaps more humane way of approaching war, sparing life whenever soldiers lay down their arms, even in the heat of battle. And on Lalitaditya's eastern border stood another king, another man of tremendous ambition, enough ambition to carve out an empire all for himself, the king of Kanyakubja, the ruler of Magda, the last Mauryan emperor and the star of the last episode, Yashavarman. And Yashavarman had an uncompromising character too, every bit as much as Lalit Aditya. Yashavarman could become vicious, turn on you before you even knew what had happened. As the stream of kings put it, if his order was defied, even for a moment, the corners of his eyes puckered, portending great calamities in the worlds or in the realm of refractory rulers. Yashovarman was not a man to be messed with. And even worse, these two very ambitious kings had come right next to each other. Back when Yashovarman was founding his empire, 
First of all, he had beaten the king of Magda, heading away from Lalit Aditya's kingdom. But then he'd carried on his great digvijaya, his great conquering journey, in a circle around India, wheeling south, then to the west, and then to the north, where he was right at the border of Kashmir's lands, arguably in their borders. And even after the digvijaya was over, the lands that Yashovarman kept control over were right next to the lands controlled by Kashmir. And as the two ambitious kings pushed the limits of their reach, they came inevitably into conflict. It was Lalit Aditya who struck first, according to the Kashmiri document at least. He took his army all the way to Yashovarman's capital, to the walls of the city of Hunchback Maidens. And there the two fought. It must have been really quite a tremendous battle. Yashovarman's army was bigger, almost certainly more experienced too. He had 900 elephants, Lalit Aditya had only 300 or so. But the Kashmiri account says that Yashovarman was quickly beaten. His warriors arched their backs in terror and withered away in a moment. Although the same account also says that there was a long battle. Whatever happened, it seems to have been indecisive. Because the two kings agreed to draw up a peace treaty. And they sent their ministers to meet one another and complete the formalities. And the armies must have been hankering after a peace treaty, especially Lalataditya's generals. They were far from home. Srinagar, the residence, was over a month's hard march away. The men were tired. And the great conqueror's power had finally been overreached, been held back by the emperor of the plains, Yashovarman. So the generals must have been pushing for a peace treaty. And a peace treaty was drawn up. It passed through the ministers on both sides. Until it came to the hands of Lalita Ditya's minister for war. He looked at it and he said, What's this? It says here, Peace is established between Yasho Varman and Lalita Ditya. Between Yasho Varman and Lalita Ditya? Who's this Yasho Varman chap he can put his name first? The minister for war was utterly outraged, and he took that outrage with him to go and see King Lanasaditya. And Lanasaditya considered it and thought, actually, yes. Come to think of it, Yasho Varman putting his name first, that is outrageous. The minister for war got a huge promotion. And the generals got told to pick up their weapons, get the men into the line, because the peace was called off. Lalit Aditya was going back to war. A second battle was fought, and this one was decisive, Yashovarman perhaps being caught off guard by an enemy who had agreed to sign a peace treaty. Yashovarman lost, and Lalit Aditya took his empire from him. What exactly happened to Yashovarman next is a bit puzzling. The stream of kings says that Yashovarman was reduced to the status of a bard, a court poet, singing the praises of his conqueror Lalit Aditya. But that's just a 
fairly conventional, pleasant turn of phrase. Historians differ in their opinions about what really happened. Some think that Yashovan was killed in the final battle. The text says that he was expatriated or uprooted. It's about as helpful in the original Sanskrit as it is in English translation. Other historians think that Yashovarman basically carried on as he was, maybe paying a touch of tribute to Lalitaditya, kissing his feet perhaps, seeing his face in the king of Kashmir's toenails, as an old Indian saying goes. But then, after the king of Kashmir had gone, carrying on about his business. And that's plausible enough, because Lalitaditya did get busy. He carried on conquering true to his motto that there's no end to the conquering, trying to carve out his empire, bringing home enough riches to have a glorious court of scholars and a, a large building project up in the Kashmir Valley. How successful Lalitaditya was in founding an empire, that's something that historians are still fighting over. That's a story, though, for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought I'd read from the Rajatangani, the Stream of Kings, that Kashmiri text we've been drawing very heavily on in this episode. But I thought we'd draw on the part of the story just before we picked it up. The origin of where these kings, the Karkota dynasty, came from. Talks about a time when the king of Kashmir was Baladitya, and the story goes like this. Now, this king had a daughter named Anaogaleka. An astrologer seeing her one day with her father prophesied to the king that his son-in-law would reign hereafter and that his line, the line of Ganada, would end with the king, Baladitya. The king, not wishing that the kingdom would pass away from his line through his daughter, tried to oppose fate, and instead of marrying her to a king, he married her to a beautiful man named Dalaba Vardhana. Thinking that as his daughter was not married to one of the royal family, she would not be able to inherit the kingdom. But this Dola Bavadana was the illegitimate son of Naga Karkota, begotten forgetting the kingdom. But the king was not aware of the fact. What the wise neglect, fate makes it great. He fortunately became beloved of all on account of his just actions and good intellect, and his father-in-law named him Prajaditya because of his great intellect and bestowed many riches on him. On the other hand, the princess, being the favourite of her parents and filled with youthful pride, enlightened her husband. Her association with the dissolute, her luxurious habits, the frequent visitation by young men, her abode in her father's house and the mildness of her husband, all these corrupted her. Having frequent opportunities of seeing the minister of Kargan, she fell in love with him and abandoned herself to him. This 
Love, secretly gratified, gradually wore off her shame, fear and dignity, and she gradually became exceedingly shameless. The minister bribed the servants with gifts and honours, and had free access to her apartments, and gratified his passion for the princess to the fullness of his heart. Her husband, by her constant neglect of him, came at last to suspect her of bad behaviour. The thoughts of his wife's misconduct reduced him in body. One night, he suddenly entered her apartment in order to ascertain the truth. He found her fast asleep in the embrace of her paramour, her bosoms heaving with long breathings. He burnt with anger at seeing her in this state of unpardonable guilt, a sight that would have enraged even others than husband. And swayed alternately by anger and grief, he with great difficulty, after much deliberation, controlled his anger. The passage then descends into a big rant about his wife. They are miserable, thought Dalaba Vardana, who follow love, for men of little wit are undone by it. Who has better control over his passion than he who has subdued jealousy, which is like spasmodic cholera? The woman, he continued, is for the gratification of passion, and like other things can be enjoyed in common. Wherefore, than a man whose feelings are disciplined, be angry on such account. Women are naturally fickle, and who can keep them under rules? What is the use in keeping them so? If the meeting of two persons to gratify a passion is an honourable act, what then is dishonourable? And since one's own body cannot be proved to be his, how can a woman be called mine? If she deserves death because she gives me pain, why do I not first kill love, which is the prime root of all the pain? And to destroy love, I must destroy jealousy first. For he who has destroyed jealousy has totally destroyed affection within half a minute. Thus he thought. And he wrote on Karga's cloth the following words. Though you ought to have been killed, yet I have spared you. This you should remember. When Dhalaba Vardana had gone out of the room unperceived, the minister awoke and read the writings on his cloth. This moderation of Dhalaba Vardana won the minister to his side. He forgot his lust and the princess, and meditated how to repay the goodness by which his life was saved, insomuch that he did not sleep well, being buried in thoughts as to how to repay the goodness of the injured husband. Now, after a reign of thirty-seven years and four months... Valaditya died, and with him the Goranda dynasty became extinct. And while the chief ministers neglected the affairs of the kingdom, the grateful Kargs duly crowned the late king's son-in-law, bathing him with waters collected from holy places and poured from a golden vessel. And the kingdom thus passed from the Gananda dynasty to that of Kokota Naga, as passed the Ganga from heaven to the head of Shiva. Not an entirely pleasant story, perhaps, but revealing. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have been enjoying them, please consider donating to my wife's charity, Snehal Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details for that on the website. There's a link to that in the description. Next time, we'll pick up the story where we left off. Until then, 
Have a great week and take care.